Well, good morning. It is good to be with you, despite our air conditioner's feeble attempts. The Lord will sustain us, even in our sweat. If you haven't already, would you turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark? As was just read, we'll be considering this portion at the end of chapter 3. As the fame and the ministry of Jesus continues, and some of the primary themes that Mark seeks to set out to lay before us in this gospel are made plain, and with his word open before us, a brief prayer to ask for the aid of the Holy Spirit. Father, we do look to you this morning, coming to you on the basis of your own promise, the goodness of your own mercy, and your continued reminder to us that you give us what we do not have, and that you accomplish what we could never achieve, and that you delight to give such gifts to your children. You delight to give mercy to those who are in great need. So Father, we come to you as those who are gladly acknowledging and confessing that we are in great need. We are those who cannot obtain what we so desperately need. We cannot achieve the very thing that we must have, but Lord, we know it is given to us freely in your Son, so would you help us by your Spirit to show us the things that are yours this morning contained in your Word? Would you give them to us as gracious gifts that we might see Christ as he is? Lord, we're asking that we would not only see him with eyes to read words on a page, but we need you to do what only you can do and to turn on the lights in our souls that we might see the reality of who you are and who we are by the illumination of your own word, by your spirit. Accomplish this, Lord, for your good pleasure in our midst, we pray. Amen. Well, as we are making our way through the Gospel of Mark, we continue to remind ourselves that really the prevailing theme that ties much of Mark's Gospel together is really an answer to a question. If you wanted to sum the majority of what Mark is driving at and aiming at, it is answering a primary and really foundational question, which is found in chapter 8. It's the question that Jesus puts to his disciples. And it's there that we read that Jesus went with these disciples into this village called Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, who do people say that I am? That can be a very awkward question. If you yourself pose that to your friends or family this week, sort of fishing for your sort of PR, who do people say that I am? If you go into the workplace this week and ask, hey, what's the word on the street about me? If you ask your siblings, your brothers and sisters, what are people saying in your classes about me? That might be perceived as a bit arrogant. Unless you are the one who is the Christ, unless you are the one who is the absolute most important one that we might ultimately know who he is. Jesus is driving at something here, saying, who do you say that I am? And in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Christ, meaning you're the Messiah. You're the promised anointed one. You're the promised deliverer that was spoken of in Genesis, promised in the prophet's failed to come about in the books of Kings and Chronicles, but you are the one, the promised deliverer. But what does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Christ? That is what we are doing here this morning. If you are visiting or new, we are those who are gladly confessing that Jesus is the Christ. 
that he is the deliverer, the Messiah, the rescuer. The answer to that question is really the driving force of these 16 chapters that Mark gives to us. Because each narrative brings us closer to answering this question and really for us clarifies our perception. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? And so the portion of scripture that's before us this morning, we are again confronted with one aspect of how we must answer Jesus is the Christ. The specific area of confrontation has to do with the unique authority and ministry of Jesus. There is a bondage that is so strong that you and I could never free ourselves from it. And yet, there is a community so secure that you could never be cast out from it. That is a wonderfully great announcement. And the very theme that ties these narratives together is Mark continues to say, who is Jesus? Well, you need to know something about him. Because whether you realize it or not this morning, apart from him, there is a bondage that you cannot free yourself from. And because of him, there is a community that you can never be cast out of. It is in all conjunction with this theme of newness that Jesus introduced at the end of chapter 2, where he talked about the new garment and the new wineskins. And a part of that new work that Christ is doing has to do with this accomplishment of what he has come to do in accomplishing a new community, a new liberation, and then at the end we'll look at this new family. So let's walk our way through this narrative, pulling out some of the themes that are here and somewhat of an overview of these verses and trying to make sense that we could better answer this question for ourselves, who is Jesus? In part, Mark would tell us he has come to create a new community. And this is what we see in verses 7 through 19. There's this summary statement in verses 7 through 12 where Mark begins to tell us that the fame of Jesus continues to spread, that more and more people from the surrounding regions continue to pursue Jesus, and that what he continues to do is what he has been doing. He's been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. But what Mark says here specifically is in verse 12 that Christ has come to create a new community. He calls several men unto himself, and he gives them specific instructions. Now, in the past eight to ten years, this word community has kind of taken on a life of its own. If you've been a Christian for any number of decades, you remember certain themes or words that kind of somehow come to the top of Christian culture, and they suddenly make their way onto every book, every blog post, now every podcast, and it becomes the all-consuming thing that you could listen in and think that is the golden key that unlocks everything that has to do with Christianity. For some reason, community has been one of those words that has risen to the top, and everywhere you turn, it seems to be that it is the thing. You have this idea of community, of community groups, or the need to seek out community, or we need to be a gospel community, or we need to call people into our community, we need to be an authentic community, and eventually community loses all meaning. And in light of this, I think we just need to guard against the temptation to become so jaded against any description of 
community. The selection of the 12 and the following narratives within Mark speak to the nature of what Christ is doing. And regardless of how we might misunderstand it, the fact remains Christ has come to establish a new community. The selection of the 12 testifies this. And what I want to do is just at a, at a high level, kind of a charcoal sketch, just call out a number of things that we could say certainly more, but not less than this. And so as we look at this passage, what could we most certainly say? As Jesus calls the 12 to himself, I think the most helpful thing we could say is that it is, number one, a picture of what all Christians are called to. But secondly, it is also a picture of what Christ has come to do. When we look at the calling of these 12s, we're meant to see in one part something that we are all called to as Jesus followers, but something unique in that Christ does in his ministry. Here's what I mean. It's, first of all, a picture of what we are all called to. Up until this point, Mark has referenced disciples following Jesus, even some by name that he initiates and calls to come after him. But here, Jesus intentionally calls 12 men from a larger group, and he calls them disciples, and as Mark puts in parentheses, who would be the apostles. What is most significant about this passage is the word that Mark uses to describe Jesus' selection of the 12, what you see there in verse 14, that he appointed them. He appointed the 12. A word, it literally means to bring into existence, to make or create. It has the same idea of Genesis 1-1, that there is creative initiative that is taking place here. And in much of Mark's gospel, these subtle themes that are echo back to whether it's the book of Isaiah or the book of Genesis are our clue to perk up our ears and listen as to what is being said here. Not that this wasn't Jesus lining up for kickball teams saying, I'm going to pick you, 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 and you, but by saying appointed, that that reminds us, oh, that sounds familiar. This idea of creating something, creating something for purpose, creating something by God's initiative, that reminds us of the first creation. So is Jesus doing something here that is an echo, that is a, a new creation? We're meant to hear that phrase and that emphasis because the selection of these 12 stands as really the significant landmark within this gospel story. Because from this point onward, these disciples are going to constantly be by Jesus' side, learning from his teaching, sharing in his ministry. They are going to become the insiders. Because they gain the special insight. Even in the next chapter, Jesus begins to speak in parable. And they come and say, what does this mean? They get the answer. But by insider, it doesn't mean that they're the heroes of the story. Jesus is most certainly the hero. Because these same 12 men will often ask questions that to us, the reader, looks so blatantly obvious. How could you miss this? How could you deny him? How could you not see the connections? They're not the heroes, but they are most certainly the insiders in contrast to the outsiders. This is the irony that Mark pulls on. Those that we would think would be the insiders, maybe the well-learned, the religious leaders, they would be who Jesus would call. Or maybe his own family that he would call them. But what Mark says is, no, it would be these 12. 
And really the emphasis of the rest of Mark's gospel is not upon their stellar qualifications, but Jesus's mission and how he chooses to use means. Even the sort of means that we would think, probably not the ones that we would choose. Keep in mind what he calls them to. He calls them to be with him and then be sent out by him. If this is a picture of what we are all called as Jesus followers, I think we are meant to see the emphasis here in that they are called to be with him and then to be sent out by him. Christ teaches by way of example that it is more than just information that these men need. He didn't just come aside and say, here, let me put my finger on your forehead and I'm just going to enlighten you with everything that you need to know. I'm out. He calls them to himself and says, let's go. It was more than information that these men needed. They needed to be with him. And though this is only a few words and subtle even in its passing, the way that it plays out in the rest of the narrative and even the emphasis we see in the epistles is that a major part of discipleship is this. It's built around relationship. They were called to be with Jesus before they ever did anything for Jesus. It was the who more than just the what. And the Apostle Paul, he followed the same example, didn't he? As he would write to the churches, he would frequently encourage them, follow my example as I follow Christ. That meant there was some sort of relational nearness that was required to say, well, how did Paul follow Christ? That in part was supposed to be some pattern as to how I'm supposed to follow Christ. I think one of the serious deficiencies of our information age, which I am most grateful for, the amount of information that you and I can have at our fingertips, one of the most serious deficiencies of that is that we can become those and convince ourselves that proficiency at a certain trade or a certain task can come by merely knowing the answers. That I can become an expert by knowledge alone. I think one of the reasons that vocational apprenticeships hold such value and will never ultimately go away is because there's something that the seasoned farmer or electrician or woodworker or chef knows that it's how you go about this, not just what you're doing. If you've had the advantage to follow someone in a particular trade that you're in, or even caring for a home or doing chores, that you knew it wasn't just a checklist you needed, but there was a certain way that that mentor went about it, saying, no, 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 it's not just a matter of making a line and making a cut. It's stepping back first and looking here and looking at the grain and remembering this and all of those things that you can only learn by being with. There is something so essential about that sort of learning that Christ emphasizes here. I'm calling you to be with me. I'm calling you to be with me. And so as we work out our discipleship as followers of Jesus, we need to be so mindful of this because there is no lack of podcasts, there is no lack of books, there is no lack of lectures or weekly, monthly, semi-monthly, biannual journals, conferences that we can get our hands around to obtain knowledge. That is not our problem. But the immaturity, 
unity that we see reflected often in our own lives and at the church in large, could it be that information alone is not the golden key to discipleship? Could it be that Christ's model here and what he calls these men to, to relational nearness, is equally as important? I think there's something that we're to see here and what we are all called to as Christ calls these 12 men to be with him. It reminds us that the call to discipleship is not merely a call to spit out theological statements or biblical trivia. It is a call to be with Jesus and his followers. Because it's very easy to read the, the, the instruction in 1 Peter 3, husbands, love your wives, dwell with them in understanding. You can have all the theological exposition of what that means, of how Christ loved the church, what word love actually means. But how helpful is it to be brought into another man's life and to see how he loves and serves his wife? All of that information has now taken on another dimension as you see it lived out. And so, too, we could say the same thing with all the other commandments of Scripture, all the other teaching of Scripture. It's not just information alone, but the uniqueness of Christian discipleship and that we are called to be with Christ and to be with one another as we seek to follow Jesus together. Does your life reflect this? Does your life reflect this? Is there a priority in our week to commune with Christ and to commune with other Christians? Let me put a sharper point on it. Who might that be in your life? Regardless of your perceived maturity as a follower of Christ, is there somebody in your life that you are saying, hey, I want to be with Jesus and I want to be with his people. Let's spend time together. As we follow Jesus, let's follow him together. There's something universal about what Christ is calling these men to, to be with him and also to be sent out by him. Certainly the disciples occupy a unique place in redemptive history as Mark notes they would go on to be the apostles, and with that carries a certain authority and, and uniqueness that we can't say one for one. But distilled down at its most simple level, this is true of us. We're not just called to sit and to gaze at our journals and our Bibles and to think happy thoughts about God. We are also called to send out and proclaim those most blessed thoughts about God. We live as Christ's followers, as Christ's ambassadors. The church exists as this outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And so what Christ calls these 12 to, we could say in a general sense, yes, we are called to that as well, to be with him and to be sent out by him. But this is not simply just a picture of what we are called to. I think most importantly, it is a picture of what Christ came to do. Beyond the mere facts of retelling the narrative, we must also see that this account is full of symbolism. Yes, Jesus calls his disciples to himself, and then he authorizes them to go forth in his authority to proclaim this message of the kingdom, to do as he was doing, to preach, to heal, to have authority over demons. But this calling and this representative authority to fulfill the purposes of God it ought to sound familiar to our ears if, in fact, they are tuned by Scripture. Here's what I mean. 
There is significance in Jesus selecting 12, not 13. 12, not 11. There is significance in what Jesus is doing here, that he appointed them, that he created him, them, that he called them into existence. Because there was also 12 tribes. There was also 12 tribes descended from the sons of Jacob that God called and covenanted with them to carry out his purposes. Moses charged these 12 tribes to function as priests among the unbelieving nations, calling the nations to trust in Yahweh. They were given a delegated authority to speak to the nations around them, to call their neighbors, to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can read of this in Exodus 19, verse 5, where Moses says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And yet, what do we know as we read our Old Testament? We know by and large that Israel failed on both accounts. They did not keep the covenant, but repeatedly broke it, and at times they failed to bring the nations into this covenant community. Thus, the stage is set, as you read the, nation, the history of the nation of Israel, the stage is set for one who will fulfill both these obligations. And this is why we can continue to say that Jesus is the true Adam, that he's the true Israel. He, Israel is the shadow, he is the fulfillment. Everything that God called the nation of these 12 tribes to be, Jesus comes and he recreates. He is creating this new community where he says, I will fulfill all that has been required and promised, and I will accomplish the very thing that God has been working towards, the triune God in all of Scripture. And so what Jesus does here is he typologically repeats Israel's story, and then he succeeds in actually accomplishing it where they fail. So Jesus arrives here on the scene. He selects 12, not tribes, but 12 men to say, come after me, follow me, and I will send you out, and you will be my representatives. Just as Moses gathered Israel on Sinai and commissioned them to reach the nations, Jesus appoints these 12 and charges them to preach and have authority in his name. Essentially, what Jesus is doing here is establishing this new covenant community to live in this new creation that he's bringing about where it will grow exponentially, really, in fulfillment all the way back of Genesis chapter 1. But what we're introduced to here is one of the primary oppositions to this new community. It actually runs through the entire section that we read this morning. There is an actual opposition to this new community. And because of this opposition, Jesus speaks to the need for a new liberation. This section here in, in Mark 3, it's sandwiched in between these two accounts of Jesus' family. And this is something that Mark does a lot in his gospel, where he starts to talk about one specific instance, and he comes back to it at the end. It's kind of a sandwich. And in the middle, there's this interruption. So one, you're kind of left hanging. What is this issue with Jesus' family saying he's out of his mind? What, what am I supposed to do with that? And as soon as that hits you, then Mark says, oh, and by the way, the scribe saying, came saying he actually is possessed by the power of demons. 
And then he'll come back and resolve this previous tension of his family in verses 31 and following. So let's consider this, not only this new community, but in verse 22, this new liberation that Christ has come to bring. Where we're told that the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, he is possessed by, by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. It's important to keep in mind the context of this passage. Jesus has been working in and is now speaking into directly because it is marked by opposition, growing opposition. Do you remember? Back in chapter 2, verse 24, the disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath by the Pharisees. In chapter 3, verse 2, there's the healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath. And then in verse 6, there's this conspiracy that began to actually destroy Jesus. At this point, Jesus is a marked man, and there are meetings, plans, schemes happening as to how he might be killed. That is the reality of where Jesus is at. And so the Pharisees come, and they say, look, the only reason this Jesus that you are hearing and following, the only reason that he has any power is because he works with Satan's authority. The only reason that this Christ performs these miracles, casts out demons, or holds your attention is because he is empowered by the prince of demons. Now that's a strong accusation. Remember Mark's whole point of saying he is the Christ. So on this side, we have some saying Jesus is the Messiah. He is the deliverer sent by God. And then Mark would say there's also those who are saying this Jesus is the prince of demons sent by Satan to accomplish his purposes. So what do we do? Well, Jesus simply walks them through the logic of their statement and then corrects it with a brief lesson. What is the logic? Verse 23. He called them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. In response to this charge, Jesus simply walks the religious leaders through the absolute fallacy of their logic and compels them to truly think about what they are implying and what they're saying. Look, I cannot be exercising demons by demonic power because Satan would be divided against himself. This is, this is 101 stuff. Why would Satan be empowering me to defeat Satan? Look at history itself. Look at the kingdoms that have come on the stage. Anytime a kingdom is fractured and divided, that's the end of itself. Eventually it falls. So by your logic, I am freeing these men and these women from the oppression of demonic forces by the power of Satan. He lets that sit in the room. It doesn't make any sense. And if you, of course, were there and you were listening and you saw these demoniacs healed and you heard the accusation of the scribes and you heard the response of Jesus, you would follow and say, this doesn't make any sense. These scribes, they're, they're something off. And Jesus presses further. He gives them a very simple illustration in verse 27. He says, let me tell you what is happening. If you really want to know, verse 27 but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. 
then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus does is he pictures Satan as a strong man whose house contains all sorts of treasures and goods. What Jesus is saying is Satan is in fact strong. He does in fact have authority and power. But Jesus is stronger and he has come to bind this strong man in order to plunder what he holds captive. That is what is happening here. What we ought to be aware of and be wary of is any sort of teaching or comment that flippantly makes less of Satan than the scriptures speak of him. There's something that has crept into the church and certain wings of evangelicalism that when it speaks of Satan, it speaks of him as very dismissive and very flippantly. There are some who even write songs and teach the Bible as if Satan were some powerless, sniveling, pathetic creature. Let's not confuse what Christ accomplishes with what Christ announces concerning Satan. Because what are some of the images that we know of and that we're given in our own Bible? Scriptures speak of him as having the power of a lion, the craftiness of a viper, the destructive power of a dragon who seeks to deceive, to accuse, to steal, to kill, to destroy. This is the one that Jesus says, I have come to disarm and to take down. What Jesus is saying, as we're seeking to answer this question, who is the Christ? Who am I? In part, we're saying, well, he has come to bring a new liberation. He has come to bring freedom from a certain type of bondage that you cannot free yourself from. In order to be free, the strong man must be bound first, and then I will liberate the captives. Jesus is saying, I have come on a rescue mission. I have come to rescue those that are in bondage. Not the bondage that you may think. It's not Rome. And modern Christian, it's not a bondage to your authentic self and trying to find whom your authentic self might be. It is a bondage to the powers of darkness. Christ has come to liberate. Friend, what this means is that there is a bondage you cannot free yourself from. And we love to eat up and to read and to subscribe to any sort of book or class or master class that tells you how to dominate your own life, that tells you how to fix yourself. Go on Kindle and look at the top most purchased books. Go into some brick and mortar bookstore and look at what is given prominence in the first place. Much of what is sold there is actually contrary to scripture saying that no amount of self-help mastery can free you from the ultimate bondage. You can rearrange the picture, you can rearrange some of the elements of your life, but there is a deeper bondage that you cannot free yourself from. There is not only, the Bible says, slavery to sin and the corruption of your human nature. That is true, but it's worse. It's not just the corruption of sin, but it is also enslavement to the spiritual forces of darkness. And friends, so what that means is there is no amount of self-help mastery, positive thinking, or stoic philosophy, circumstantial change that you can enact to ultimately bring about the bondage that you need freedom from. You need Christ 
to liberate you from the bondage that you cannot free yourself from. That is a major aspect of why Christ has come. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, there it is, the corruption of our sinful nature, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, depending upon your background and how you have come to Christ and maybe different churches that you have been in, this whole idea of bondage and liberation can sound off-putting. I don't want to get there because then we're handling snakes and talking in languages that I don't know very quickly. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Christian, there is a very strong emphasis upon Scripture, within Scripture, that speaks to the bondage that Christ liberates sinners from. Not only the bondage of sin, but the sway that the wicked one holds over us in our sin. 1 John 3.8, one of the reasons that Christ came that John loves to just put in very plain language, this is why Christ came. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Put that on your Christmas card this year. Remind one another. This is the reason the Son of God has come, to free me from the bondage of the, of the, of the devil, of the wicked one. Or Colossians 1.13, Paul comes at it from this imagery. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So not only is this gospel that we love to proclaim an announcement of forgiveness from sin, it is also a promise for freedom from bondage of Satan. Therefore, a big part of what we long for in Christ's coming is certainly the, the, the freedom from the bondage of corruption, the, the corruption that sin brings, but the absolute doing away with of the kingdom of darkness. And Christian, can I remind you in your prayers and your evangelism that this is a big part of what we're praying for when we're sharing with our unbelieving friends and family members. We want to be clear on the gospel and what the gospel announces, who Christ is, what we do with sin, the need for forgiveness, but all of that should be illuminated in your minds knowing that there is one that they are in bondage to, that their eyes are covered, their eyes are darkened, and we need the Spirit of God to illuminate their eyes. They need to be freed from the bondage that they are in, not only to their sin, but also to the devil. And so there's a big part of our evangelism and our prayer as we share the gospel that we're praying that Christ would liberate captives. And we need to be reminded of that. Christ has come to bind the strong man. He will be crushed just as God promised. Well, that's the logic, but there's this lesson in verse 28 that really drives at the issue. He speaks to these Pharisees, to the scribes and those who are listening, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And Mark helpfully puts this Statement in verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
This teaching wasn't just pulled randomly out of the repository of, of Christ's knowledge. He is saying this in response to this accusation. He does this by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, let me give you a very important lesson. And he speaks to them about blasphemy and sin, the sort of sin that can be forgiven, and the sort of sin that has been classified as unforgivable. Let's clarify what this lesson means. Two thoughts. Verse 28, first and foremost, we have to say this with all clarity and authority. Jesus just said every sin, every blasphemy is forgivable. Have you heard that? Have you ever heard that? Do you tell yourself that daily? Every sin, every blasphemy is forgivable. And what is sin? It's the full spectrum of immoral and ungodly thoughts, desires, motives, and actions. Basically, in every way that you were created to be an image bearer of God, but that you fail to image who God is, that is sin. And that is forgivable, Christ says. And what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is that defiant irreverence, even mocking of who God is. Some of you, in your own testimonies, as you think back upon your lives, you can think of examples not only of specific sins, but of a blasphemy, an attitude of blasphemy, an irreverence. Is that forgivable? Absolutely. All sins, all blasphemy is forgivable. Don't miss this. Well, the scriptures declare the deserving wrath of God against our sin. The scriptures also declare the depths of his mercy in our sin. Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Or the prophet Micah, what a great portion to memorize, Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. It delights God to pour out steadfast love, to admonish, or to uh, pour out his, his abundant steadfast love. Of course, one of the passages we love to turn to in reminding ourselves or even counseling brothers and sisters, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make no mistake, don't read over this too quickly in what Christ said. Every sin, every blasphemy is forgivable. The severity of sin does not matter. God will forgive any who come to him in humble repentance. The volume of sin, it does not matter. God will forgive any who come to him in humble repentance. You could have lived a life for a hundred years filled every day with all manner of sin and blasphemy. And what Christ announces here is that there is still forgiveness. As you read your Bible, you will find that God forgives idolatry. He forgives murder, fornication, adultery, cheating, lying, homosexuality, blasphemy, drunkenness, extortion, greed, all of these are sins of God's people that he says that can be forgiven. He also forgives self-righteousness, which is the foolish pride of thinking my sin doesn't stink. 
That is an arrogant form of sin. And he says also, that's forgivable. God himself says there is no sin you could ever commit or ever will commit that he could not also forgive. Do you believe that? Have you found that to be true and are you trusting in that? Listen to Charles Spurgeon. You cannot sin so much as God can forgive. If it comes to a pitched battle between sin and grace, you shall not be so bad as God shall be good. I will prove it to you. You can only sin as a man, but God can forgive as a God. You sin as a finite creature, but the Lord forgives as the infinite creator. Do you know the forgiveness of sin? Do not read too quickly over this statement. Moving on to the next one of what Christ says, the one sin that cannot be forgiven. This is the most shocking of the two statements. It's not the unpardonable sin. We should not be shocked that there is sin that could not be forgiven. We know deep within our conscience, I am guilty. What should be most shocking to us is that Christ says every sin, every blasphemy can be forgiven. But there is one sin, one blasphemy that is unforgivable, verse 29 and 30. He says there is one sin, one blasphemy, and it's in reference to these men saying that he has an unclean spirit. It is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, to answer what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's really essential that we understand what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 14, John 15, John 16 are very helpful if you want to read through those passages reminding us of why Christ sent his spirit. John 15, 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So we keep that in mind. The spirit of God has been given to bear witness to who Jesus is. John 16, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he will not only bear witness as to who Christ is, but he will show the great need for Christ convicting the world of sin. And then in John 16, 14, ultimately, we could tie it all up and say, where Christ says, he will glorify me. Now keep in mind what the scribes have just done and what, how Christ responds. He has authority by the power of Satan. And what Christ says is that if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there is no hope for you. Meaning the very ministry of the Spirit, which has come to bear witness about who I am, the very ministry of the Spirit that convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, the very Spirit that comes to glorify me, if you reject that Spirit, you are rejecting the essence of who I am and the only means, the only hope that you could have to know the forgiveness of sin. It is to, in essence, reject the mercy that God gives through the ministry of his Son by his Spirit. And when we die in unbelief, that is unforgivable. That is the one sin that will keep you from heaven. Whatever list of sin that weigh guilty upon your conscience, have you heard the word of the gospel? It can be forgiven, but there is one that cannot It is a failure to believe. It is to reject Christ. It is to reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is to say, I am self-sufficient. 
or I'm not as bad as you think I am. The danger that Christ points to is not a specific sin, but is a hardened resistance against the God of mercy. Because every believer can confidently say, it was the Holy Spirit who brought me to Jesus. It was the Spirit who sought me out, convicted me of my sin, showed me the goodness of Christ, turned on the lights to where I was in darkness, and I have come to see I need to be saved. That's the ministry of the Spirit. And so to blaspheme or to mock the Spirit's working is to reject the means of salvation. This is the entire point. This is the issue at hand. The failure to repent and believe in Jesus as God's provision for sinners is to remain in the state of condemnation. And this is why we preach the gospel with such confidence and urgency. The Spirit is the only one who can turn sinners towards Christ and liberate us from the bondage of Satan. There is this new Liberation, but lastly, let's end by looking at this new family that's here in verse 31. It returns us back to this whole reminder that his family has been seeking him out, and then in verse 31, they come again. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. One of the interesting twists in Mark's gospel is those people that you would expect to be the outsiders, the tax collectors, uh, the fishermen, the zealots. They're actually the insiders. And the people that you would expect to be kind of on the inside of Jesus' life and ministry, they're oftentimes the outsiders. Those that you would expect would have Jesus' priority don't necessarily get that priority. Now, what Jesus is doing here is not demeaning his mothers or his brothers. He's not mockingly like some junior high kid, like, who's my mom? That's not her. I don't know who that is. He's not embarrassed of his family. He's turning around looking at those disciples Seeing this as an opportunity to clarify further, what does it mean to be a disciple? By saying, who shall I call my family? Who has priority in my life? Who will I turn myself towards and say, that is who I'm committed to? Whoever does the will of my father. He says, whoever does the will of God, that is my family. Now this is, not as shocking in our context as it would have been in a first century Middle Eastern context where family is absolute. This would have hit just as shockingly as the previous section. Who is my family? Well, we know right out there. He said, no. My family, the ones that I will turn myself towards, that I will commit myself to, that I will never turn my back upon, the one that I will put my name upon, the ones who do the will of God. Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking, isn't that just repackaged legalism? Jesus says, the ones I'll open the front door of my house to, or excuse me, have you been doing the will of God today? Well, come on in. Is this really good news? Because I know the truth about myself. 
I know the truth about who I really am. And so if this is the gateway to be with Jesus, I don't know that that's such good news. Whoever does the will of God, this is where we need all of Scripture to help illuminate Scripture to remind us what Jesus is getting at here. Because in John 6.40, we're actually told what the will of God is. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus does here in the face of evil-hearted unbelief, he says, Look to me and believe, for this is the will of God. Does that not sound paradoxical? The cure for unbelief, the cure for evil hearts, is to look upon Jesus and believe. Is that not the most paradoxical statement you've ever heard? That is the wonder of the gospel, friends. That is exactly what the gospel is. It is look to Christ and live. This isn't double speak. This isn't mystical gibberish. It is the mysterious transforming power of the gospel. Look to Christ and live. Look to him and believe. The means by which God is pleased to open blind eyes and soften hardened hearts is to put Christ before us in all of his glory. Why is that? Why is it that that is God's means to transform hardened hearts? Because when I look to Jesus and I see the promise of the gospel, what do I see? For one, I see the resolution for my evil heart. When I look to Christ, I see that Christ has come to cleanse my heart by renewing my mind. The miracle of the new birth is that, that I have a new nature. The whole essence of who Christ is and why he has come. To be upon a cross to cleanse sinners from their sin. When we look to Christ, we see the motivation for repentance. When we see the goodness and the magnificence of God in creation, we see his, his grace and redemption, the vileness of our own corruption and our sin. We can do nothing less than agree with God when we see this is who Christ is, this is what he has done. That is my motivation. Grace motivates us to turn towards Christ, to turn away from sin. When we look to Christ, we see the source of true wisdom. We see God's provision for his holiness and his justice, his mercy and his love. At Christ, when we look at him, we see this grand wisdom of God saying, only God could have accomplished this. That there, in Christ, is the resolution for God's justice and the mercy that I need. And when we look to Christ, we see that he's the giver of the Holy Spirit. We look to Christ and confess that our attempts at self-reform, they're empty. My resolutions in and of themselves are powerless. But when I look to him and believe he is who he is, and that he declares that he sends his spirit to do what I could not, that his spirit is living water, that it renews our minds, it causes fruit to be born, it assures us of our union with Christ. This is the will of God. Look to the Son and believe. And Christ says, that's who my family is. What a wonder that Jesus calls anyone who would look to him and believe and promise to them that they will be family. How does that hit you this morning? Listen to, to uh, J.C. Ryle. Let all true Christians drink comfort out of these words. Let them know that there is one, at least one, who knows them, who loves them, who cares for them, and who reckons them as his own family. 
What about those that be poor in this world? They have no cause to be ashamed when they remember that they are the brethren and sisters of the Son of God. What about those who are persecuted and ill-treated in their own homes because of their religion? They may remember the words of David and happily apply them to their own case. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Christ looks at a bunch of foul sinners, hardened hearted, confused about what it means to worship God and follow him. And he says, you're my family because of what Christ himself would accomplish. Brothers and sisters, this is what we confess. This is who we are. We're members of a new community that Christ himself is creating. We're the benefactors of a new liberation that Christ himself has brought about by binding the strong man. And we are members of a new family that is unlike any of the strongest bonds you will ever know for all eternity. Bonds that we could never create ourselves, but that Christ unites us. This is the newness of what God has come to do. Father, we pray that you would continue to do this good work amongst us. Lord, how greatly we need it, how greatly we need to be reminded of it, and most importantly, how greatly we need the fruit to be born from it in our lives. Lord, help us to hear the grand promise of the gospel that any sin, any blasphemy can be forgiven. We come to you with the full awareness of our sin, even the full awareness of our arrogance and mocking, pleading the blood of Christ, the forgiveness that is offered to us. And we come seeking and longing that true community, that true family that is so secure because it's bound with the very bonds of your own spirit and the faithfulness of your life lived unto perfect righteousness that you would bind us to yourself. Lord, even when we see the failure of human family, even when we see the failure of humanly created communities, to find the assurance and to know the growing comfort of being not only bound to you, but bound to one another as brothers and sisters. Lord, continue to do your good work in our midst, we pray. Amen.